Hi, folks. It's been great, hasn't it, to be together on this special day. Let's pray. I'm going to say some words that we sung a little earlier. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Father, please press these words into our hearts as we look at your word now, Lord, that we would be filled with awe and with confidence in the death and resurrection of your Son. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hasn't it been wonderful to celebrate together the baptism of Miriam, Nathaniel and Reuben? These children are a wonderful example to us of what God is like. God gives life like no one else. He alone has power and authority to create life out of nothing. And over these past few weeks, we've seen in John's Gospel what happens when this giver of life walks upon this earth. Weddings are transformed. Thousands are fed with a solitary packed lunch. Public pariahs are treated with love and kindness and are transformed. The sick are healed. The blind are given sight. And as we saw last week, the dead are raised. All things the Old Testament said would signal that God's Messiah has come. He's come to establish his kingdom. And yet, and yet, Jesus has many enemies. And those we meet in our Bible reading today, John chapter 11 at the end, they know that he's done all these miracles. Did you notice that in verse 47? They know their Bibles. They know they are experts at Messiah spotting. But even without all of that, raising someone from, from the dead, that would bring about a very different reaction from the one that we see in our Bible reading. Simply by calling his name, Jesus has raised a man who had been dead for four days in the presence of many people. His earth-shattering words of chapter 11, verse 25, become true. They're true. I am the resurrection and the life. There is a man walking the earth who can raise the dead. Death is our biggest problem, isn't it? It's the one thing none of us can avoid, yet Jesus stands and solves it. But these religious leaders do not rejoice, as we would expect. They don't bow down in worship. Instead, they express disappointment, frustration, anger even. And then verse 53, they plot his death. And this is what we do when Jesus doesn't fit in with what we want. We become his enemies. Maybe you're one of them. So first ask how the world responds to Jesus. How the world responds to Jesus. So far in John, we've been confronted by Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, why has he come. John makes it very clear that we need to respond to that. At the end of the Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life 
life in his name. And the response in verse 45 to 54, we do see belief, don't we? And we see rejection. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And then we had that horrible word, but, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the murderous plotting begins. And this is the choice we have. It's very black and white. We find it throughout the scriptures. To believe in him, to follow and to trust, or to effectively kill him, reject him, push him out. And this is what happens. The one who gives life is to be put to death. And in part, we see the sort of twisted reasoning of these religious leaders. Uh, although it's far more selfish than it first appears. Verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's the religious uh, ruling body uh, in Israel at the time, underneath the Roman authority. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many, many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of the named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. A bit rude. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation, then that the whole nation perish. It feels quite political, doesn't it? Jesus is the talk of the town. His miracles uh, translate into popularity. And if there was an election at this point, everyone would vote for Jesus. So if you're an opponent, like the leaders here in this passage, you would either have to join Jesus or do something very drastic to get rid of him. The Sanhedrin go for the drastic option. The reasoning was that by raising the dead, as Tim said just now, he puts the cat amongst the pigeons. People will fl flock to him. The Romans will get nervous. They'll proclaim him the Messiah, the Christ, and there'll be an uprising. And the Romans will slam it down, react very violently. And so Caiaphas's solution in verse 50 sort of makes sense. At the time, things in Israel were politically tense. The Romans were already on high alert. So it's better that one dies rather than many as the Romans take their revenge. Though, in fact, that does happen about 40 years later in AD 70. The Romans, uh, there's an uprising. The Romans raise Jerusalem to the ground. So there is some logic here to the Sanhedrin's planning. However, if we take an even closer look at the text, we see the hardness of human hearts. It refuses God's loving advances in the person of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 48 again. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take both away our place, the temple, and our nation, Israel. Sounds rather personal, doesn't it? They seem concerned less about Roman reprisal, although that's part of it, and more about their position of power in the land. It's our temple, they say, and our nation, verse 48. And Jesus is threatening those things. 
When he was feeling the heat of popular opposition, American President Richard Nixon famously sent people to break into the offices of the opposition party to dig up the dirt. Why? To stop the threat to his presidency. It's the same thing going on here. The leaders in the Sanhedrin had a very comfortable situation in Israel. They all have the privileges, the prestige. If things got out of hand, all that power, all that status could be lost. And while we take a dim view of this response by the Sanhedrin, we remember that our hearts are not particularly different from theirs. Of course, if you ask someone, do you want to kill Jesus, they would say, no, not at all. But if you ask them, are you happy for Jesus to have authority over every part of your life, happy for him to call the shots to, and trust him with those, that would be different, wouldn't it? And in fact, the desire would be the same to kill Jesus, but in a more respectable and subtle way, keeping him at arm's length, perhaps even attending church from time to time. But you wouldn't really want Jesus to impact your career, uh, your personal freedoms, like the relationships you have and the way that you spend your time. And your popularity could take a tumble. Or worse still, your comfort. And too often we subconsciously decide that our way is better, pursuing our agenda, our desires. But we know that so often that leads to frustration and failure. And as we learned from Ecclesiastes recently, even where there's personal success and bounty, one day it'll all be gone. I remember once doing Christianity Explored with someone, and they said something like this, Dan, this better be true, because if it is, I realize I need to give it everything I've got, because it's all or nothing, isn't it? And I'm prepared to give it my all, if it's true. And she was right. She could see that following Jesus was a glorious thing. But she could also see that in this life, it was going to be costly. And so we recognize, don't we, what's going on in the hearts of these leaders? The heart that rejects Jesus. So that's how the world responds to Jesus. How do then Jesus respond to the world? And that's where we see the glory of Jesus and the utter foolishness of turning down his invitation to come to him. In short, Jesus responds to the world with extraordinary love. Earlier on in John chapter 3, Jesus says, For God so loved the world, yes, that dark, self-centered, God-rejecting world, that he gave his one and only Son. He gave his son. Jesus' purpose in coming here was to die, to be given up to death, so that we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. So the one who gives life must die. Now think, some think the Bible is a random collection of stories, and indeed that John's gospel he just sort of stuck a few stories in about what Jesus did. But not at all. He writes his account in a very careful way. And he carefully places this account of the Sanhedrin meeting right here on purpose. Just after the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Why? Because he wanted us to think about his death. 
his death is completely welded to the fact that he gives life. In fact, the case against Christ has been growing since his early days. Near the beginning of chapter 11, Judea is dangerous for Jesus to visit. Do you remember verse 8? The disciples are alarmed. Don't go there. We're going to be stoned. Jesus knows his time is coming. The one who gives life must die. Why? Because Jesus can only raise the dead by first dying. So it's not just because Jesus can give life that gets him killed, but it's because by dying, Jesus is then able to give life. By dying, Jesus is then able to give life. Let's look a bit more closely at Caiaphas. Verse 49, he mocks his colleagues, you know nothing. Verse 50, you do not realize, you do not understand. It is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. This gets to the nub of the necessity of Jesus' death. And it comes from the lips of his enemies. And certainly John's teaching on it as he provides this interpretation, verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but at high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one church. So John, the Bible, part agrees with the religious leaders. John, without knowing it, John says, without knowing it, because of the status in Israel as high priest, Caiaphas is a prophet here. It's true, Jesus must die in order to save the nation, but not in the way that he's thinking. He must die, verse 51, for the scattered children of God. So what's going on? Well, it comes down to a word that's repeated in verse 50 and 51. Verse 50, it's better for you that one man die for the people. Verse 51, as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That word for uh, is the Greek word hyper, on behalf of. It means a substitution, a swap. So it's better that Jesus dies as a substitute instead of, in the place of, the people. Jesus would die instead of other people dying. But not to save a revolt, but to save us from sin. This substitutionary death is a theme in John's Gospel. We saw it in chapter 10, didn't we? Jesus speaks of being the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep on behalf of Hyper. The sheep, God's people, are going to live because Jesus the shepherd will die. Chapter 6, Jesus feeds thousands with a packed lunch. He speaks of the bread being his body that he's about to give. Hyper for, on behalf of, the life to the world. The life of the world. The world can live because I am the bread of life. That's what Jesus says. I give my body. It's a swap. And it's what the Old Testament taught. The promised Messiah, the suffering servant, would lay down his life for the people. He was pierced for our iniquities, our transgressions. For us. It's an incredible swap. 
In chapter 1, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord lays on Jesus, the suffering servant, the sin of all of us. And verse 50 is a remarkable verse. Caiaphas says, Jesus, he will perish instead of the nation. And that word perish refers to the truth you and I are perishing. We're perishing because of our sin, our guilt. It's a spiritual word. We fail God. He's rightly angry with us. We've pushed him away. And his good justice means death is the outcome. Separated from the Father and all his gifts forever. But God never wanted that. Do you remember that verse at the bottom? He loved the world. He loved the world so much, so extraordinarily, that he gave his son to die in our place. Jesus will bring life, but at an extremely high price. And that's the key of the Bible, isn't it? The central loving act of Jesus. And that's hated today, outside the church, but sometimes within the church. Too many churches proclaim a wrong message of Jesus, that the cross is not necessary for salvation. Which means that their message is that Jesus died for nothing. But no, we love these verses. The cross teaches us the seriousness of sin. The Son of God had to come and die for it. The, seri the wonderful extent of his love to do that for us. And we must take advantage of this death or we will perish. Yesterday, our Prime Minister said about the Ukraine situation, this is a turning point for the world, and it's a moment of choice between freedom and oppression. Well, there's a choice far greater in this passage. For every human being needs to make this choice. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, he cried out to the people who had ears to hear, repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God is close at hand. He invites us to turn away, to repent of our sins, as we've been looking at in the baptism. Turn away from our sins, reject all rebellion against God, and turn to the only one who can give us life, eternal life, forever with him. And that begins today. Hallelujah. We walk with a living Savior as his people. And Jesus says, be baptized. Follow the example of the Preston family. Be washed of the waters of Jesus. Be made clean by him. And that's what that water in the baptistry represents. And Christian friends, isn't it exciting to follow a life giver? That death has no hold on us because of Jesus. When we hear the bad news from the doctor, we can take comfort in the news that life is truly going to begin. Because Jesus raises the dead. He will raise us. He's promised and he's proved it. Because he's died on the cross for our sins. And so we, when we falter and fail, when our faith is wobbly and weak, Jesus still looks on us lovingly and compassionately and says, do not fear. The debt is paid. Your death is defeated. I am the life giver and I will never let you go.
Look at this Isaiah 53 on the screen. As I close, let's say it together if you want to. Uh, statement of faith like the one we had earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen.